Welcome to History Talk, the podcast that brings together a panel of experts to discuss current events in historical perspective. I'm your host, Jessica Venus Nelson. And I'm your other host, Brenna Miller. This year marks 100 years since the beginning of U.S. involvement in World War I and the withdrawal of Russia from the war after the seizure of power by Bolshevik forces in October of 1917. For the war centennial, we've invited three historians to discuss the most important legacies of the war in the U.S. and Europe and around the world. In the studio with us, we have Dr. Jennifer Siegel, a specialist in modern European diplomatic and military history in the Department of History at The Ohio State University. Hello, thank you so much for having me here. Via phone, we have Dr. Aaron Reddish, a historian and expert in late imperial and Soviet history at Wayne State University. Hello, nice to be here. And finally, we have Julie Powell, a PhD candidate in modern European history at The Ohio State University, specializing in interwar French culture and the impact of war and personal and national identities. Hello. <laughs> Thanks for joining us today. We're currently in the midst of commemorating 100 years since World War I. Why are these events important for us to remember? Well, I would argue that the First World War is particularly important to remember because of the fact that it set up the entire 20th century. Differences between the pre-war period and the post-war period are very stark. The ways in which the war concluded set up the international systems and the structures that allowed for the events of the 20th century, the international events of the 20th century, to evolve in the way that they evolved. I would also add that many of the issues that brought on the First World War and that the combatant nations during the war fought over and contested are still with us today, be it with nationalism, ideas of mass mobilization, uh, the use of the media, arms control, taking a, a small country and making a regional conflict into a global one, that these are all, if you will, lessons of history. I mean, there are a lot of lessons that we can learn from the First World War. Why is there so much commemoration for the war? Have there been other wars remembered so publicly 100 years later? I think that's a great question. I would actually argue that in this country, there hasn't been that much commemoration of the war at all. Having exactly. as, a, as a Europeanist, the First World War, even before this 100th anniversary, is much more present in Europe in memorialization, in the history that is taught in the schools, in wars that people speak about. You know, there's an evocative presence of the First World War in a way that really doesn't exist in this country. The uh, circus for commemoration in this country has been, been sort of sparse in comparison to what has been going on elsewhere. In some sense, the, the First World War has never really been sort of America's war in the way that it has been um, in Europe. And the commemorative culture there is robust um, in a way that, as Jennifer points out, it frankly isn't here. And I don't know that in the U.S. we have something to compare it with. You know, So I wasn't around for the centennial of, of you know the Civil War, which perhaps would be maybe the closest comparison. But I suspect uh, World War II, since that was uh, Americans really associated themselves and sort of our national identity more with our participation in that war, that we'll see sort of um, a larger effort on that front, but but I don't know. Certainly not for the First World War. Not not here as there is in Europe. I mean, the 50th anniversary of the Second World War was a much bigger deal in this country and in I would say in Europe as well. But we want to talk about the First World War, not the Second World War. Aaron, right. <laughs> let me just add my support for what my colleague said. That in the United States, it has been very quiet on the centennial 
you know, there's the museum to the First World War in, in Missouri. There are attempts to put a new memorial in Washington, D.C., but it's nothing like the Second World War. And, you know, it's probably because of the casualty rate, um, the number of casualties that the United States had was minuscule compared to Europe and how much the First World War kind of transformed Europe. But if you look at 2014, specifically France opened up kind of this amazing memorial. England had this public ceremony of putting red poppies all across uh, London. So you could kind of see this physical commemoration of the First World War. On the United States, there's there's hardly anything. Uh, if I can give you a vignette, I was teaching the First World War uh, at Wayne State in 2014, and we were trying to, on Armistice Day, find poppies to wear, and nobody could find them in the United States. But I had a Canadian student. Remember, Canada was part of the British Commonwealth, and he was able to bring over kind of a load of red poppies that he got at Tim Hortons in commemoration of the centennial of the war. So there you see just over the border kind of the difference in the commemoration of the war. So why does it hold such an important place in Europe? I, I mean, I, I think that the size of the conflict, the extent of the conflict, the uh, casualty numbers that uh, Aaron was referring to earlier – uh, the level of devastation and uh, the ways in which Europe, the map of Europe was redrawn, all of that really uh, impacted the significance in terms of, of the need to touch back to the First World War, also in terms of the ways in which memorialization of wars in general reference the First World War. Veterans Day in this country Armistice Day, uh, Remembrance Day uh, in Britain uh, and uh, in the rest of Europe all date to the end of the First World War. So much of the the references of war memorialization go to World War One, as Aaron was talking about, the red poppies. The reason that red poppies are so readily available uh, in Europe, and, and I uh, will agree, the red poppy that I have comes from when I happen to have been in Britain in November, a month in which everyone for the entire month seems to be wearing a red poppy on, on their lapel. That is because, of course, the red poppy, which references the, the poppies in Flanders Field, is the symbol of the fundraising organization for veterans. It's, it's much more present even in the memorialization of war. So it's a much more visible war in Europe than here. Yeah, I would agree with that. And I think it's also important to remember, too, that, I mean, as, as Jennifer points out, the scale of this was so massive. You know, this is the first conflict um, where all of these nations are using armies of citizen soldiers, where they're conscripting instead of using professional armies. And so people are involved in a way that they hadn't been before. It touched more people than it had in the past. Every family in Europe knew someone who had died, knew someone who, who was injured. And so um, the breadth of it, the reach of the conflict um, was was something that, that people had never seen before. So who were the main actors in the war and what were the key issues the war was being fought over? Essentially, we're talking about a war between the central powers, the principal members of which were Germany, Austria-Hungary, as well as the Ottoman Empire, uh, Bulgaria, and the allied and associate powers initially, the Entente powers of Britain, France, the Russian Empire. The principal addition to that, of course, much later on, was, was the United States fighting in on the side of the, the allies. 
But the United States was not ever an ally. It was an associated power. <laughs> you also have in the, in, wrapped up in this conflict, Japan. Serbia. Uh, Serbia, right. Belgium, Thank you. Of course, Serbia, yeah. Serbia <laughs> always gets left out. <laughs> yeah. um, Romania, and, Greece to some extent, yeah. Portions of the then, various empires. Yes, I was going to add that we also need to remember uh, that when you talk about Great Britain or Germany or France, you're also talking about all the related colonies and empires that, uh, and the peoples and the laborers that come into that. So, so it truly was a world war in many ways. <laughs> oh, <yeah. laughs> I mean, what were some of the key issues that the war was being fought over? How would people argue at the time what they were fighting about? In many ways, it depends upon which stage of the war that we are talking about, and also who who you were asking. I think many of the great powers felt that they were fighting for uh, to hold on to their great power status. And uh, this was a question of, of competition over resources, influence, status. What's interesting about the, f- the First World War as opposed to the Second World War, a war that my students always remind me they're much more familiar with and much more <laughs> with which they're much more comfortable, yeah. is the fact that it was not clearly a war of good versus evil. Mm-hmm. It was much harder to distinguish oneself from one's enemy. These were, in many ways, systems, uh, governing systems that were, for the most part, equivalent. Oddly enough, you had the great autocratic empire aligned with Europe's Western democracies, the British Empire, France, these were constitutional democracies in many ways. Russia was most certainly not, even though they had made somewhat half-hearted movements towards a constitutional system, a parliamentary system. But uh, Russia had much more in common with Germany and uh, Austria-Hungary than they did with their actual allies. But for geostrategic reasons, Russia was allied with the French and the British. So the the distinguishing between the sides is much more complicated in the First World War than in the Second World War, where you could contrast between liberal democracy and... Nazi Germany and fascism. The goodies and the baddies. Yeah. (laughs) Right. Yeah. I mean, I think that's exactly right. I I would just add one other thing that we shouldn't see that war was inevitable Mm -hmm. uh, Mm -hmm. in 1914. Uh, I mean, there were these tangled alliances and kind of military escalation and in some quarters kind of this expectation and desire for war. But that doesn't mean that uh, that war was actually going to happen in 1914, it was a kind of a series of, of uh, happenstance and circumstances that led to this slow walk to uh, war. And, and particularly not the war that actually developed. No one expected the war exactly. that they found themselves in and the war that dragged on for as many years mm-hmm. as it did and, and uh, uh, you know, involved so many so many people and created so many casualties. Yeah, I mean, that's an important point. Of course, initially, you know, going into the war, people thought, well, we'll be done by Christmas and we'll we'll be home. And, and of course, this will be a, an incredibly short conflict. And of course, the reason for that is this was something that they hadn't, their experience in warfare prior to this was the imperial wars, right? And, and these were quick, decisive 
wars, in fact, where they were fighting, you know, in in Africa and in uh, East Asia and things like this. And um, the firepower was was far superior. They had created these situations in which they restricted actual sale to arms to people in, in these imperial places so that they did have that superior firepower. And so they were used to these quick, decisive battles. And, and what they found was quite surprising to them, I think. And they also had really willfully ignored the examples that were available to them yeah. that indicated, that suggested the kind of warfare they would find Absolutely. themselves involved in. The examples of trench warfare that existed in the Boer War, in the U.S. Civil War, the ways in which modern weaponry would change a war of the offensive, a mobile war, the kinds of things they could should have looked at the Russo-Japanese War for those kinds of examples. And yet they took very often the wrong lessons from these wars, <laughs> the lessons that fit their preconceptions as to what the war would actually look like. Immediately after the war's end, what did many think the legacy of the war would be? You know, they really thought they were fighting a war for civilization. They thought this was the war to end all wars. You know, they thought, you know, once we have this, it's so horrible. No one will ever want to have this again. Um, And that's partly responsible for this, you know, the structuring of these international institutions, the Treaty of Versailles and things like that in, in 1919. And so certainly they thought, this would be the last conflict of its kind. And we know, of course, in hindsight, that wasn't at all the case. Although interestingly, even while the war was being fought, there were already people who were referring to this war as the First World War, which really (laughs) suggests that there was a resignation uh, that there would be a Second World War beyond this this war. I think it really depends on who you are talking about when you're looking at what did they think the legacy was, what did Mm -hmm. they expect... That, that they had accomplished from fighting this war. I, and I think that uh, Julie's absolutely right to be, to be latching on to the idea that they did feel that they were fighting something that would end war, that they were fighting for civilization, that they were fighting for particularly after the, the introduction of the United States into the conflict and Wilson's very lofty 14 points, <laughs> the idea that they would be creating a world in which big and small nations would have uh, almost an equal say that they would be um, uh, that they were creating a world in which national self determination would be the governing uh, the governing theme. Of course, if you ask the Japanese in the wake of the war when they were trying to argue for a system in which there would be no racial discrimination in the conduct of international relations, and that was smacked down quite forcefully by the United States, by the British Empire, they would say that, that the aftermath of the war was, was not a world in which this kinder, gentler yeah. system of, of international relations had been established. It was really more about preserving sort of the world order as it had been. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, from the, uh, from the left and from, you know, looking at it from the Russian perspective, there's, I mean, I think there are the kind of these dualistic ideas about the legacy of the war where the Bolsheviks, I mean, Lenin in particular, seeing the war as kind of this imperialist war, you know, after they came to power in October of 1917, there was an idea that the war could be transformed into a war uh, to fight against imperialism and capitalism. And, you know, as the war is ending uh, in 1918 and into 1919, you could see this red wave coming through Europe. So, So, you know, there was a very short idea that the war would actually lead kind of this liberation of the working class against capitalism. I mean, obviously that didn't, that didn't work. 
But there's also, I think, a, another kind of the ground level idea of the commemoration of the war as not of heroics, but one of victimization, of understanding the, the plight of the soldiers, the male soldiers, with the publication of photographs, of letters, of memoirs that were coming out, even as the war was, was still going on, that depicted the everyday struggles of the soldier. And that, I think, created a, a discourse, a narrative of the soldiers as victims kind of wrapped up in this larger conflict that they could not escape. First World War created this very, very robust veterans movement that is is also significant and is also important uh, in terms of thinking about the legacies and thinking about the role of soldiers, particularly in France. The veterans movement was uh, an association for every town. There was an association for every malady and every um, sort of disfigurement or mutilation, right? And these men took positions in um, the French government. Um, they were sort of figureheads of this movement for peace because they actually had they had fought. You know, they 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 sort of saw themselves as, as being able to make the determination that, um, you know, it, it was worth it to try to prevent a war like this moving forward. And they also sort of heralded these moves towards disability rights and, and workers' rights. Um, they were integral in the work of the International Labor Organization's Disablement Committee um, and uh, major figures like Adrian Tixier and Albert Thomas. French veterans were, were integral in these sort of international movements uh, for peace and reconciliation. So I think that's that's another important piece to remember as well. well and these are part of also the legacies that no one yeah. no one recognized at the time. I mean, the greatest legacy of all, I would argue, is, is the shift of power from Europe to the periphery, to the United States and ultimately the Soviet Union as a result of of the First World War and also the shift of power and authority from the European empires and the European center to the areas that had been their empire. There's a real transition that took place as almost a side effect of the First World War in economic power, in independence. While Europe was concentrating on this war, the areas that had been part of their their formal empire and informal empire were forced to actually build up, begin to take early steps towards building up their own mm -hmm. industries, uh, acting uh, much more independently than they were able to do while Europe was focused on the empire. And this is really uh, a moment where the the shift towards uh, independence takes place, and the and, th and it really is the end of the end of the European era mm -hmm. that takes place in in the process of World War One. While no one was really paying attention to this, it really is a founding moment, and particularly in terms of national identity for the the former dominions. Right? It's so funny. I was looking at a Canadian passport the other day, and you know how we have our images and that sort of celebrate like you know American accomplishments and all these types of things. And, and many of the images in the Canadian passport were, were from World War One and were World War One monuments. And but it, and it's very much so for Australia and. Absolutely. as well, yeah. a, 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 a pivotal moment in their, in their um, national histories. And what are the fiscal results of the war? Well, everyone always talks about you know, both war loans and reparations payments and when they're talking about the finances of the war itself, the way in which this war was paid for. This was very much so, so a war that was fought on credit. And initially, the credit for for 
fighting this war came from the European combatants themselves. Germany certainly did much to finance the, the war efforts of its alliance partners. Britain and initially France served as the paymasters for uh, their alliance, although the French were unable to keep up the the, the financing of the war to the extent that the British were. But essentially, so much of the funding for the fighting of this war came from the United States. The Allies borrowed from the United States and Britain borrowed on behalf of its allies from the United States because, of course, the British, with a much more robust financial system themselves, were able to, to obtain better rates. But at the end of the war, this left Europe with a an extraordinary debt burden towards the United States. Along with that debt burden came a a real transition in power and authority and influence uh, going forward. A true movement of uh, the financial center of the world from London, from the city of London, to New York, to Wall Street, from the pound sterling, which had been the strongest currency in the world, to the U.S. dollar. And you know, we're still living with the, that today. London may still be a financial center, but it doesn't have the authority that, that Wall Street does. So Russia also had its own very unique experience in World <laughs> War One. So Aaron, um, how sure. is the war remembered differently in Russia? And what were the key impacts of the war there versus what we see in other locations? So, you know, if we've talked about how the First World War has shaped the 20th in the 21st centuries. I mean, you can clearly see that in Russia, but it's contested. It's problematic. In fact, only recently, in 2014, was there actually uh, the erection and commemoration of a large memorial to the fallen uh, from the First World War. Uh, in part, it's because, you know, Russia lost the war, but also because the war was enveloped in the Russian Revolution. So there were memorializations to the war, but it was only the, the memorialization to the 1917 revolution. And you know, a lot of scholars have shown recently how important the, the war was to bringing on the 1917 revolution, both in February and October. And that's both kind of the, uh, the collapse of the economy, you know, the, the lack of bread, the rising prices of fuel, but also mass mobilization, uh, mobilization of, of national sentiment, the desacralization of the czar, uh, the radicalization of, of politics, all led to revolution and led to a specific type of state that the Soviet state really was built upon both the violence of the war and the kind of need for mass mobilization, both during the war and the resulting civil war that didn't end until 1921 or 1922. So it was remembered in the Soviet Union through the lens of Soviet struggle, if you will. So most of the war was remembered through, uh, through uh, literature talking about the revolution, through soldiers' experiences, although, you know, all Quiet on the Western Front, for example, was translated into Russian, and that actually gained a lot of readership. And it's only now uh, that the state has tried to talk about those who had fallen in the First World War were heroes of the revolution. If I can kind of add on to this, that what is 
kind of interesting now in 2017 is that it's not just the centennial of the entrance of the um, U.S. into the war, but there's this year-long remembrance of the centennial of the Russian Revolution. And in Russia, they've really, the state has really struggled about what to do with this. That is, should they remember a revolution in 2017? And in fact, descender, and they've gone back to using the same language that they use, and here I'm talking about Putin, uh, use the same language that they used in 2014 to talk about the victims of the revolution and the victims of the war, and that we need to see this as a way of bringing the nation together, even when those outside of Russia undermine the Russian nation. What I think is so fascinating, of course, is the fact that the Russian Revolution and the evolution of what became the Soviet states, their relationship with the rest of the great powers and the rest of Europe and the West is so closely wrapped up in that need to keep Russia in the war. The response that the Bolshevik Revolution and that the Bolsheviks found from Britain, France, the United States, the lack of welcome that they received is very closely related to that need at first to keep Russia in the in the war itself. So this, again, is a way in which we can see the evolution of the 20th century being very, very closely related to the First World War and the effect that the First World War had on, on the course of the Russian Revolution and the response that, that the new Soviet state found. Changing topics a little bit, how did the war impact French national identity and culture? Julie? Obviously, the war was really, really deeply important for the French. Um, and there are a couple of reasons for this. Um, the Western Front, which is sort of the quintessential image of, of the First World War and trench warfare, was in France, right? And France, uh, French land was was devastated. And, and I think the First World War is sort of this redemptive narrative for France, right? They were devastated, but they were resilient, right? Um, so Verdun, which was one of the major battles on the Western Front, 70 out of 85 French divisions fought there. So this was really sort of this thing that everyone in France had to pass through. They had the shared experience. Experience. General uh, Robert Nivelle at, at Verdun had this very, very famous quote, on ne passe pas, so they shall not pass, right? So it's this idea of um, courage and steadfastness in the face of, of adversity and triumph, and, and, and this really plays into the idea of French national identity, I think. This was also the war in which France regained the territories of Alsace and Lorraine, which had been taken by the Germans 45 years prior uh, with the Franco-Prussian War. So that was very important, uh, obviously, as well. And I think that the First World War is much less contested in terms of French memory than their other wars. So this really can stand as this sort of monument to French identity, in which case, you know, the Second World War, of course, which begins in 1939, France is out in the spring of 1940, and um, the Algerian War, which was an imperial conflict, is is deeply contested. And so in terms of French identity, the, the First World War is much less contested than these these other conflicts. And I think that's sort of where they would, would place their emphasis. It's fabulous that we have experts here on international and U.S. history and France and Russia. We just want to open the question up a little bit to think about if there were other significant legacies of the war around the world and how did it change the map elsewhere? Well, again, that's a, that again is a huge yeah. question. I do think that one of the most <laughs> yeah. important legacies, uh, something that we are still dealing with the, the repercussions uh, of is the, the way in which the Middle East was a playing field for the war um, and the ways in which the the lands of the Middle East 
were almost favors promised to everyone and anyone if they were willing to participate in the war on both sides. It's so, it just so happens that, of course, the promises made to the victors are more important than the promises <laughs> that were made uh, by those who lost the war. But one of the most significant elements of the wars are the ways in which diplomatic negotiations and, and promises made for territorial gains were dangled in front of non-combatants and neutrals. This, of course, we see the aftermath of promises that the British made to the Arabs in the Hussein McMahon agreement, promises that the British made to their allies uh, in the Sykes-Picot Treaty, the ways in which the British promised the same strip of land to anyone who was willing to support them in the war, the Balfour Declaration, which promised a uh, a Jewish homeland in the region. All of these conflicts and conflicting promises lay the groundwork for the continuing crises uh, in the Middle East, simply the ways in which borders were drawn. This, of course, comes out of the peace treaties, not necessarily the war uh, itself, but they relate to those diplomatic negotiations and uh, agreements that were made during the war. We can go region by region in the world and see the ways in which these same issues took place. Uh, Southeastern Europe had similar wheelings and dealings, the ways in which the Greeks and the Bulgarians and the Italians were going back and forth over a drawing of, of borders uh, in their region, uh, all as a lure to bring them into the war. These are the smaller stories of the war that don't get told in the same way that the origins of the war uh, are um, told over and over again. We all know about uh, the assassination of Franz Ferdinand uh, on the streets of Sarajevo. We all have heard about the expectations for a short war, but we haven't spent nearly enough time and, of course, in a brief podcast, we don't have nearly enough time um, to talk about the ways in which the smaller states of Europe and the smaller uh, states and groups around the world, in many ways, big players in the ways in which the the war was fought. Yeah, the Italians referred to to the end of the conflict as a mutilated peace because, in fact, they hadn't gotten the spoils that they they thought they had earned <laughs> for coming into the conflict that they thought they had. Yes, earned. yes. <laughs> Are there any final major misconceptions about World War One or hidden legacies that would be good for listeners to know? Aaron? I mean, if we're talking about kind of misconceptions, uh, one of the first things that comes up is that, in fact, if you were a soldier, you had a better chance of surviving than most of the previous wars, which is true, but that also belies the, the, the larger fact that millions of people died, right? In Russia alone, it was, you know, around 1.7 million soldiers were killed, you know, almost 19 million soldiers were actually uh, mobilized or served in the war, and that, you know, there was a whole population upturned. Uh, In Russia, it was 3.5 million civilians were actually became refugees, yeah, by 1917. And this was across Europe, that this was kind of devastating to the civilian population to a degree that uh, had never happened before. And, you know, we need to remember not only kind of the, the triumph, if you will, of, of the First World War, the geopolitics of it, but also how much it affected 
everyday life of uh, peasants, of workers, um, that transformed kind of gender relations, and uh, that it was an absolutely devastating cataclysmic event for every European who lived through the war. I think one of the kind of larger misconceptions, and this is debatable, I guess, but I suppose this is my opinion, um, is that there was an, an inevitability that World War One would lead to World War Two, right? There's this this thesis of like, oh, well, it's it's uh, the the next thirty years war, right? Um, and and the sort of baseline for this is that well, the Treaty of Versailles was so punishing to the Germans that of, of course this was inevitable. And and to be frank, I, that's just not really the case. Um, Germany didn't lose a lot of land; it lost ten percent of its land uh, that it had acquired, and that was the territories of Alsace-Lorraine that it. It had only gotten in, in 1871. Um, Article 231, which is known as sort of the guilt clause, the the, the punishment clause. It wasn't it wasn't so much a, a moral judgment as it was this requirement that they pay for all of this devastation in, in the area that the war had been fought. And in fact, there were similar clauses that appeared in, in the treaties with Austria and Turkey, right? So this wasn't outside of, of the norm. The payments weren't particularly onerous. There was the 1929 stock market crash, but but that hit everyone. You know, and as Jennifer pointed out, you had the dolls playing that restructured payments. There was nothing inevitable about this, and, and certainly not in the provisions of the, of the Treaty of Versailles, um, which I think is, is sort of a, a misconception that's moved a bit too broad for my taste. <laughs> I mean, I, I think you're making an excellent point. Much was being done in the 1920s to fix mm-hmm. the problems of what was not a perfect treaty, the Treaty of mm-hmm. Versailles, none of the Paris peace treaties uh, that ended the First World War were without flaws. But they were flaws that could be worked on and were being, were being worked on, that there isn't this inevitability of the Second World War coming from the First World War, coming from the, the peace treaty. We rely so much on uh, John Maynard Keynes's idea of a Carthaginian <laughs> peace and, and the economic consequences of the peace that we have, have become somewhat brainwashed that, in fact, it was that, that Versailles uh, was entirely responsible for everything bad uh, that came after. Obviously, we also know that that Hitler was was referring directly to the Treaty of Versailles when he was claiming justification for the steps that he was taking to rebuild Germany in violation of the terms of that treaty. But there's not a direct line that can be drawn from the First World War uh, to the Second World War. I think there isn't a direct line, but we also need to understand that the end, the socio-political environment after the war created fertile ground for kind of this radicalization of politics Mm -hmm. and mobilization of the population in a degree that we didn't see before the war, including paramilitarism, that it was uh, maybe maybe it didn't wasn't going to lead to a second world war, but you there was going to be a radicalization of politics. And I don't think that you would have had such radicalization of politics on the left and the right without the war. Thank you so much, guys. We'll wrap it up on that note. Thank you to our three guests, Dr. Jennifer Siegel, Dr. Aaron Reddish, and Julie Powell. For more on this topic, check out our November 2017 article on the long legacy of World War One, available on origins.osu.edu. And also see Julie Powell's article, Shock Troops, Medical Film, and the Performance of Shell Shock for the British Nation at War in the Journal of Social History of Medicine. 
Thanks, everyone. This episode of History Talk Podcast was brought to you by Origins, Current Events, and Historical Perspective, an online publication of the Public History Initiative and the Goldberg Center, and the History Department at The Ohio State University in Columbus and Miami University in Oxford, Ohio. Our main editors are Steve Kahn and Nicholas Breifogel. Our executive producer is David Staley. Our audio and technical advisor is Paul Kotheimer. Our audio producers and hosts are Brenna Miller and Jessica Venus Nelson. Song and band information can be found on our website. You can find our podcasts and more on our website at origins.osu.edu, on iTunes and on SoundCloud. And as always, you can find us on Twitter and Facebook. Thanks for listening.